2: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
3: Now, I've got the key right here. Cut it fresh yesterday.
1: I'm surprised that it gets so much light sitting back off the street like this.
3: They call it sunny Florida for a reason. If you think the living room is bright, check out the bedrooms. This would make a darling baby's room, wouldn't it?
0: We hope so, someday. We just got married. This would be our first home.
1: It is quite a steal. What's the application procedure?
3: I can give you everything you'll need at my office. There's one thing I'm required to tell you, though, before we begin the application procedure.
1: Oh no. I knew there was a catch.
3: There is a reason the house is so much lower than the comps in the area. Some years ago, there was a murder in here.
1: I knew it was this house!
3: Oh, are you talking about that sweet little girl and... And her parents... Yes. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if that affects your decision.
1: I... uh, I think it does. Yes.
0: Sorry. I'm... I'm sorry.
2: This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
4: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on the Sims Family Murders.
2: If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you leave a 5-star review on your favorite podcast directory and don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday.
4: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at parcast and on Twitter at parcast network.
2: In October of 1966, While most of Tallahassee was at a football game, computer programmer Dr. Robert Sims, his wife Helen, and their 12-year-old daughter Joy Lynn were brutally butchered in their own home.
4: Whoever killed them seemingly vanished into thin air, taking the murder weapon with them.
2: Investigators scrambled to find clues as the community reeled in fear, but came up with no solid leads.
4: The days following the Sims family murders on October 22, 1966, were crazed and filled with panic.
2: Gun sales skyrocketed. Locksmiths' phones rang off the hook. The town even canceled Halloween celebrations. Tallahassee was in a tailspin.
4: And to make matters worse, by the time October turned to November, The sheriff's office still didn't have much of a case.
2: Investigators searched desperately to find a tangible lead, a suspect, a murder weapon, anything concrete, to put everyone's minds at ease. But they were still grasping at straws.
4: So they started a deep-dive investigation into The Sims' life, thinking maybe a dark secret could have come back to haunt them.
2: On the surface, The Sims were a perfect family doting, loving couple, three daughters, 17-year-old Jenny, 15-year-old Judy, and 12-year-old Joy Lynn, honor students with sterling reputations to boot, a pious family who was active in their local church community.
4: A deeper investigation into their lives revealed that the Sims family really were as perfect as they seemed. Robert and Helen were loyal to each other and devoted parents to their daughters. They were one of the most respected families in town for good reason.
2: The only coincidence that the sheriffs found somewhat suspicious had to do with Mrs. Sims' job as the secretary at First Baptist Church.
4: For years, Mrs. Sims set a shining example as the church's secretary. She played the piano and neighbors who lived near First Baptist have fond memories of coming outside during lunch hour to hear Mrs. Sims play.
2: But she abruptly quit just days before her murder which led investigators from the Leon County Sheriff's Office to look at Mrs. Sims' boss, the pastor at First Baptist Church, C.A. Roberts.
4: C.A. stood for Cecil Albert Roberts. He had been born in 1932 in Texas, where he also went through divinity school.
2: Besides being the pastor at First Baptist, C.A. Roberts was also the chaplain for FSU's football team.
4: He was social, charismatic, and handsome the iconic reverend around town, and a married family man to boot.
2: Whenever a priest was needed, whether to be at a sports game, a new business opening, or a hospital to read someone their last rites, CA was everyone's first call.
4: Remember, Tallahassee at that time was in its early adolescence as a city, which came with some growing pains. A lot of residual small-town habits, like gossip, had yet to die off. So, when Helen Sims quit her job a week before the murders, rumors swirled.
2: For police, the coincidence was the only black mark on the impeccable Sims family record. It was a lead, however small, and warranted looking into, except when investigators started trying to uncover why Helen Sims quit, Something strange happened.
4: Leon County Sheriff's Investigator Larry Campbell's phone started ringing off the hook, with women calling in to hastily deny any involvement in the Sims murders.
1: Leon County Sheriff's Office, this is Investigator Campbell.
3: Hello? Yes, I... I just want you to know, I didn't do it. I had nothing to do with what happened to Helen Sims. Who is this? This is, um... Uh, I, c- I can't tell you that.
1: Ma'am, in order to clear you as a suspect, I need your name.
3: I'm just saying, I don't care if he had moved on to her. I wouldn't be jealous. I was the one who ended things anyway, so whatever he tells you, that's the truth.
1: Whatever who tells me?
3: The pastor, of course. Oh, please, don't tell anyone I called. His poor wife. May God forgive me.
1: Hello? Hello? Hello?
2: At first, Campbell was puzzled. Then, he put together the timing of Roberts being named as a suspect and started to do a little digging.
4: It turns out that C.A. Roberts and Helen Sims weren't having an affair. But Helen Sims might have been the only woman in town who Roberts wasn't having an illicit relationship with.
2: Investigators from the Leon County Sheriff's Office dug into Robert's life and quickly discovered he'd been carrying on a lot of affairs with many different women.
4: And from what law enforcement could tell, Robert and Helen Sims had a happy, healthy marriage. So it's very possible that if Helen did know about his behavior, she'd likely have a problem with it.
0: Helen, come in. Pastor Roberts, I'd like to talk to you a moment, if you're available.
5: Always available for my most sterling employee. What can I do for you?
0: I'm giving my two weeks' notice, effective today. So I'd like to talk about the process of finding and training a replacement.
5: Why, why Helen, is everything
0: all right? Is it your health? Is it your husband's? You know what this is about, C.A. I just can't set these appointments for you and still sleep at night.
5: I am working through my sins with God.
0: That's all well and good, but I can't look God in the face on Sunday after a week of lying for you anymore.
5: Please, don't tell my wife. I'll give you a handsome severance. Just just please don't tell my wife.
0: I don't want your money. I want you to do the right thing. You have seven days to tell your wife about what you've really been up to in that office, or else I will.
5: You can't prove anything?
0: No. I have your appointment book, which I kept accurate down to the letter.
5: Helen, I'm begging you. Give me a number and I'll write the check.
0: You can have whatever severance you want. How? Using church funds? That could be going to help the needy? You really are a piece of work.
5: Helen, please be reasonable. Think of my children.
0: I am. Are you? Seven days, Pastor Roberts. And my husband knows we had this talk, so if you even think about coming around the house to talk me out of it, he'll be ready to show you the door.
4: So, investigators began to wonder, what if Helen found out what Roberts was doing and quit her job, storming off in anger? And Roberts, paranoid Helen would tell his wife, or worse, out him publicly, retaliated to save his own skin.
2: This theory didn't quite fit the violent nature of the crime, particularly the extent to which little Joy Lynn was brutalized. But it was the best investigators had to go on, so they took it and ran with it.
4: The other problem was C.A. Roberts had an alibi. As we previously mentioned, he was the chaplain for the FSU football team. So like everyone else in town that night, he was at the big game.
2: Most of the game, at least. Investigators combed through footage of the FSU Mississippi State game and spotted C.A. Roberts in every quarter of the game. But no one had eyes on him during the halftime intermission.
4: Some rumors even circulated that C.A. showed up for the second half of the game in a different set of clothes. Footage of the game is grainy, so it's hard to corroborate this for sure. But they sure look like the same set of clothes to investigators.
2: Speculation mounted. Did C.A. Roberts leave the big game at halftime and, during that 20-minute intermission, drive across town, kill the Sims family, clean up, change clothes, and come back for the second half?
4: Investigators were determined to find out.
2: The Leon County Sheriff's Department mapped out every possible route from the stadium to the Sims house and back.
4: They ran exhaustive drills and timed simulations to figure out whether or not C.A. Roberts killed the Sims family during halftime.
2: But the more they pursued this theory, the more holes they saw in its logic.
4: For starters, the Sims family was bound and gagged with articles from the family home, that may have not been laid out in plain sight. This suggests a level of premeditation and deliberateness that someone in a hurry might not be capable of displaying.
2: Also, Dr. Robert Sims was a pretty big guy who would be evenly matched against most assailants in a one-on-one fight, and evidence suggests he was awake for at least some of what was happening to his family.
4: Even if C.A. Roberts could make it from the stadium to the Sims' home and back during halftime, assuming he quickly overpowered three people, including a man who exceeded him in stature, seemed like a bit of a stretch. In fact, signs were beginning to point to multiple killers.
2: While it's possible that one killer could have subdued the entire Sims family long enough to bind and gag them with little sign of a struggle, it's far more likely that multiple suspects work together to achieve that goal.
4: Also, the knots used to bind the Sims family were fairly intricate. If Robert, Helen, or Joy Lynn had put up any sort of a fight, it would have been hard to tie those knots.
2: But if one person held each family member down while the other tied the granny knots, well, that would make it much easier to tie them up quickly.
4: If C.A. Roberts really did want to kill Helen and Robert Sims in order to protect his secret, investigators felt as though he would have acted alone. Finally, his motive doesn't explain the brutality the killer or killers exhibited towards 12-year-old Joy Lynn.
2: Also, from what investigators could glean from the grainy game footage, C.A. Roberts didn't show signs of having been in a struggle during the second half of the game, no tousled hair, scratches, spots of blood, etc.
4: After exhaustive attempts to prove his guilt, investigators ultimately found it impossible to put C.A. Roberts at the scene of the crime. And in November of 1966, they officially ruled him out as a person of interest in the murders.
2: This hardly did anything to calm the citizens of Tallahassee, who were still on edge about a possible killer in their midst.
4: And, since this was the first case the Leon County Sheriff's Office had ever seen of its magnitude, the investigative dead end left them on edge as well. If C.A. Roberts didn't kill the Sims family, then who did?
2: And after turning the whole town upside down to find any credible shred of evidence that could lead to finding the killer or killers, including a murder weapon, how are investigators ever going to catch them now? Our story will continue in a moment after the break.
4: And now, back to our story.
2: Investigators at the Leon County Sheriff's Office had torn Tallahassee apart looking for answers about who killed the Sims family in the latter half of 1966.
4: They scoured the woodsy ravine behind the Sims house and even drained the local pond in search of a murder weapon, a forgotten article of clothing, anything that could lead to a solid clue.
2: When that failed, they turned their microscope on the Sims family. The only questionable coincidence they found in their personal lives was Helen Sims' relationship with her boss, Pastor C.A. Roberts.
4: Helen quit her job as his secretary just a week before she died and once investigators started digging for info on C.A. Roberts, scores of mistresses floated to the surface, proclaiming their innocence.
2: Investigators ultimately determined that C.A. Roberts was hiding a lot of things, but murder wasn't one of them.
4: After C.A. Roberts was officially cleared several weeks after the murders in November of 1966, life in Tallahassee adapted to a new normal. The initial trauma of the murders had faded, But the residual effects had taken hold.
2: People now locked their doors. Children couldn't play unsupervised.
4: Men who'd never even held a gun bought one to defend their families. Women looked in their rearview mirrors driving home from the store.
2: Several months later, over the holiday break, a man named Robert Howells took his new wife on their honeymoon. Robert Howells and his wife Peggy were driving down south to the Florida Keys for their honeymoon on December 22, 1966, when Robert decided to tell Peggy a story.
4: In horror, Peggy listened to Robert's account of murdering the Sims family. He took her through, step by step, how he broke into the house, subdued Robert Sims, brutalized his wife and daughter, and then shot the whole family dead.
2: Howells spoke with such a calm demeanor and in such graphic detail that Peggy was concerned. She started keeping track of Robert's behavior.
4: Years later, sometime in the 1980s, Peggy wrote a letter incriminating her now ex-husband, Robert Howells, in the murder of Dr. Sims, Helen Sims, and Joy Lynn.
2: When investigators found Peggy's letter and finally started digging... They discovered Peggy and Robert Howells were keeping a darker secret than anyone ever realized.
4: Robert Howells had a documented history of domestic violence. He had a drinking problem and was an angry, violent drunk.
2: Peggy became convinced Robert was guilty of murdering the Sims family and consumed with helping law enforcement put him behind bars for his crimes.
4: She recalled Robert telling her about a fight he supposedly had with Helen Sims at the grocery store when she disrespected him, which he said was what prompted him to follow Helen home and kill her and her family.
2: Law enforcement couldn't do anything with Peggy's letter unless Robert confessed himself. So Peggy agreed to work undercover with the Tallahassee police and even went as far as to agree to bug their house in order to get her husband to confess. But it went horribly wrong.
3: Here you go, hon. Minty for the stomach.
1: I told you, I'm fine. Just had too much to drink.
3: Minty will soothe it.
1: Don't tell me what to do. Or what? What do you mean, or what?
3: Or what? You'll make me regret it like Helen Sims?
1: What the hell are you talking about Helen Sims for? In front of the
3: kid? What the hell are you thinking? Sweetie, go to your room. Dad, don't
4: sit on the windowsill.
3: You'll squash Mom's bug.
1: Bug? What's this wire? What the?
3: Robert? Stop. Put that down! Stop!
1: Is this a recorder? Did you bug my house? Oh, you better run! Please, Don't move! Step away from the door! I didn't do anything. I never laid a hand on her.
5: I don't believe that for a minute, pal. But I can't put bracelets on you
4: tonight. After that, Robert Howells agreed to come in for questioning about The Sims' murder. As soon as he sat down with investigators, he turned the magnifying glass onto Peggy.
2: He proved to investigators that Peggy had a history of manic depression and said that his ex-wife had an ax to grind.
4: There were other mismatches in this theory too. Robert passed his polygraph test, his prints were not found at the crime scene, and the gun Peggy said that Robert used in the murders was a 32. Investigators knew the Sims family was killed with a 38.
2: Also, Robert's supposed motive, being disrespected by Helen Sims in the grocery store, was more than a little far-fetched.
4: Looking at the police reports from their abusive marriage in combination with the many holes in their case, investigators cleared Robert Howells as a suspect in the murders of Robert, Helen, and Joy Lynn Sims.
2: And Robert Howells, a documented domestic abuser, was released back onto the streets where his ex-wife Peggy, who just tried unsuccessfully to have him thrown in jail, was left unguarded.
4: This, along with the mishandling of the crime scene, is another example of how law enforcement in Tallahassee made dangerous investigative missteps on the case.
2: Sadly, in a time period where domestic violence was not regarded with nearly enough seriousness by society or law enforcement, there were a lot of husbands who used the story of the Sims family to control their wives.
4: Or, as people called it back then, keeping them in line.
2: And it seems Robert Howells used these kinds of sick mind games to control his wife, Peggy. In
4: 1969, Leon County's then-Sheriff, William Joyce, told the Panama City News-Herald that the case was essentially cold.
2: He said with disappointment that investigators couldn't close the case without some sort of eyewitness testimony or confession, and hope someone would come forward and do the right thing. It's worth noting that three years is a relatively short amount of time after a murder to formally declare a case cold, especially a case as high profile as this one.
4: Investigators declare a case has gone cold when they've exhausted all investigative possibilities and are essentially dependent on a new lead to break the case.
2: So it's even more surprising, given the magnitude of the case and how it changed the nature of the city, that investigators made this kind of declaration without offering a reward for new information.
4: The next lead didn't resurface until a new generation of investigators were working in the Leon County Sheriff's Office.
2: Including one familiar face, Larry Campbell, the rookie who skipped his own birthday party the night he got called to the Sims family crime scene was Leon County's new sheriff in 1978, when a young man named Tommy Fulgham was convicted of a truly grisly murder in Atlanta.
4: When cops found Tommy Fulgham outside his apartment building covered in blood, he was holding a jar with his girlfriend's liver inside. The rest of her body was in pieces all over the apartment
2: after his arrest tommy told atlanta police he killed his girlfriend because he thought it would stop the devil from roaming the earth
4: tommy had been haunted by visions of the devil for some time by then first he saw the devil inside other people and then finally inside himself
2: tommy became convinced that he was the devil and he convinced himself that he tried to convert his girlfriend and therefore made her a personification of satan so he felt he had to kill her.
4: Tommy Fulgham's psychiatrist, who saw him from 1976 until his conviction in 1979, diagnosed him with chronic paranoid schizophrenia, which a court-appointed psychiatrist later confirmed.
2: And this is where Tommy's connection to the Sims family comes in.
4: Tommy grew up two blocks from the Sims family,
2: Leon County investigators wondered if maybe Tommy's schizophrenia reared its ugly head before that fateful day in Atlanta, and he perhaps lashed out on the Sims family.
4: It was a long shot, but the first solid possibility investigators had in years. However, the theory quickly lost traction when investigators started playing through the scenario.
2: Tommy, who was 16 when the Sims family murders happened, was a wiry guy and had always been small for his age, especially in high school.
4: He also wasn't very athletic. His preferred extracurricular activity was school choir.
2: When investigators reached out to Judy and Jenny Sims, the surviving Sims sisters said they didn't know Tommy Fulgham and were positive Joy Lynn didn't
4: either. Tommy Fulgham was quickly dismissed as a suspect. Investigators knew that whoever killed the Sims family back in 1966 had to physically overpower and subdue three people. And Dr. Sims was a big man.
2: Additionally, the killer also kept the three Sims family members controlled while tying them up in granny knots, which isn't the most difficult knot to tie, but is more intricate than a basic square knot by far.
4: Investigators soon realized that 16-year-old Tommy Fulgham could never physically overpower Robert, Helen, and Joy Lynn Sims and murder them that savagely with absolutely no sign of a struggle.
2: Dr. Sims would have known he could take Tommy and tried to put up a fight, but when the cops found the crime scene, barely a throw pillow was disturbed. Even if he'd had a gun, it's hard to believe Dr. Sims wouldn't try and put up a fight to save his family.
4: Finally, Tommy Fulgham's fingerprints did not match any of the hundreds found at the Sims family crime scene.
2: Crestfallen investigators abandoned that lead and waited for another miracle.
4: They had almost another decade of waiting ahead of them.
2: Larry Campbell, like most career cops, learned early on the value of trusting his gut.
4: And he'd always had a gut instinct about the Sims family murders that he'd never been able to prove.
2: You see, C.A. Roberts wasn't the only person of interest in the Sims family murders who investigators set their sights on from the beginning.
4: A young couple we'll call Romeo and Juliet were natives to the Tallahassee area and connected to one of the town's most prominent families.
2: Which means Larry Campbell knew it would be difficult to make charges stick. Come in. Sir, um,
1: I have that report you requested.
5: I don't remember requesting a report from you, Campbell. In fact, I believe I remember asking you to do very thorough research before filing the report you're talking about.
1: It's just, sir, my gut tells me that those two are responsible.
5: Your gut? You know who's partially responsible for our sacred relationship to our gut as officers of the law? Do you know who's partially responsible for more than half the police and resources this department has?
1: Yes, sir, I do.
5: That's right, you do. So I want you to be damn sure about exactly how hard you want to bite the hand that feeds you, before you write something up that this man will undoubtedly see about how we want to haul his son in.
1: I understand, sir.
5: And what's more, if you're right, and I'm not saying you are, you hear me? But if you're right, And we tip his father off that we're looking into these kids? He's got the wherewithal to cover their tracks. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. So let's go back to plan A. Exhausting every other resource in this damn town before we come after that Romeo and Juliet you're so obsessed with. You hear me? Yes. That's not good enough, son. I said, do you hear me?
1: Yes, sir, I hear you.
5: Now get out of my office and get back to work.
4: Some say that the identity of Romeo's father was, in part, what led to law enforcements declaring the Sims family murders a cold case after only three years of efforts.
2: Romeo's father was a prominent criminologist and professor at Florida State University. He was well known throughout Tallahassee.
4: So when the police first identified Romeo as a suspect, it's possible they felt a little intimidated by the reputation of the professor and tread very lightly when it came to convicting him.
2: However, this did not stop everyone from at least suspecting the couple. Apparently, from the night the Sims family murders happened until the day he died in 2014, Larry Campbell claimed he knew Romeo and Juliet killed Robert, Helen, and Joy Lynn Sims all along.
4: But he could never trap them in a lie quite long enough to make any charges stick. And despite an extensive search for evidence, couldn't link them directly to the crime beyond a reasonable doubt.
2: So you can only imagine Larry Campbell's palpable emotion when, years later, Juliet resurfaced out of the blue to teeter On the edge of confessing.
4: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
2: And now back to the story.
4: In 1987, Larry Campbell was still working for the Leon County Sheriff's Office, but his record was blemished by an unsolved case he'd caught as a 24-year-old rookie, the Sims Family Murders.
2: So when Juliet, the young Tallahassee woman who Larry Campbell had suspected since the Sims murders first happened, showed up at the sheriff's office requesting an audience with him, Campbell no doubt thought this was the miracle he'd been hoping for his entire career.
4: You see, Juliet and her ex-husband Romeo were just another young star-crossed couple in love back in 1966, who happened to both have motives for the Sims murders.
2: Romeo and Juliet were 21 and 19, respectively, when the Sims family was murdered. He was the son of a prominent criminologist and professor, and she was the daughter of a janitor at FSU.
4: Neither of their parents were happy with the relationship, which started as a childhood friendship. They were used to lying about the time that they spent together, which is why investigators initially thought their alibis on the night of October 22, 1966 didn't match up.
2: Well, both came from abusive homes. Juliet, in particular, suffered severe physical and emotional abuse at the hands of her father.
4: As a teenager and young woman, Juliet had a fascination around town with death and funeral homes.
2: In fact, Rocky Bevis said his father, Russell, had to formally request that Juliet stop coming around the Bevis funeral home some years back, saying she had a fascination with death that went beyond a professional curiosity.
4: She cycled through roommates in college because of her off-color decor preferences.
0: Hey, I'm Shelley,
3: new roommate. Oh, are you a transfer student? Yeah. Why? Most of the people who need housing this late in the semester are transfer students. Come on in. We can be friends. I don't know many people here either.
0: That's the free bed there?
3: Yeah. Mattress is clean and everything. They replaced it after the other girl left. She wasn't here but three weeks. You need help unpacking? I- Uh, wait.
0: What's that over your bed? Mm, What do you mean? The poster? No, that fabric. It's got lilies embroidered on it. Like the shroud we got my grandma for her funeral.
3: Well, I'm sure it's not hers, personally. I got this brand new. That's the same thing though, a funeral shroud? It makes for a nice canopy. I like being inside it. Look, I can cover myself entirely.
0: You know what? Don't worry about helping me unpack. I'm not sure I'll be staying too long either.
2: Beyond her relationship with Romeo, Juliet did not have much of a social life. She'd always had trouble making friends, Romeo, who also struggled socially, never quite fit in with kids his own age.
4: Little did anyone know, Romeo's home life was equally dysfunctional. His father was a famous criminologist and icon in his field, but at home he was a mean drunk who carried on affairs behind his wife's back.
2: Romeo and his father had a contentious relationship. Some who knew the family said committing the perfect murder as a proverbial middle finger to his father would not be outside the realm of possibility.
4: Romeo and his family lived right behind the Sims' house. When law enforcement arrived on the scene the night of the murders, some report seeing him outside as squad cars rolled in, making strange gestures.
2: Like all the Sims' family neighbors, Romeo was questioned the night of the murder, which, of course, led to Juliet, who was also part of his alibi being questioned as well.
4: Investigators quickly saw that their stories didn't add up, and Larry Campbell knew in his gut that something was off.
6: You say you were at the drive-in? Yes, sir. They were having a triple feature. What movies? Um, to tell you the truth, sir, I couldn't tell you what the second or third one was. You realize that answer doesn't look good for you, right, son? It's just, my parents, they don't like who I'm seeing. So triple features at the drive-in are a great way for us to, uh, sneak around and, uh, you know, be together. Oh, Lord. Uh, All right. What happened after you all finished? We debated stopping for some ice cream, but we were low on gas and low on money, so she said we better just go home.
1: Back to Tallahassee?
6: Yeah. So she dropped me off up the street from my house so our parents wouldn't see us together and I walked the rest of the way.
1: You hear anything? See anything out of the ordinary?
6: I remember a white car. four door. never seen it before. Drove up real slow and stopped beside me. You see who was in it? Can't pick out their faces, but there were three of them. One of them leaned out and looked at me, said to the other ones, that's not him. Then they drove off. Around what time was this? Couldn't tell you, maybe 10.30 or so? What happened after that? I went home, put on another movie, fell asleep. You didn't hear anything strange? Any noises from out back? No, fell asleep pretty quick. You live right behind the house where four people were murdered. You must be a pretty heavy sleeper. I don't know what to say. Romance makes me tired. Oh, for Pete's sake.
4: When police questioned Juliet. She says they stayed for two movies at the drive-in and then drove straight back to Tallahassee. She also remembers a white car, but says they drove by it together and they never saw it again.
2: These incongruences in their stories, combined with Juliet's questionable background and fascination with death, piqued the investigators' interest, which only grew when they factored the motive in.
4: A week before the murders, there was a report of someone Romeo, to be precise, peeping at 12-year-old Joy Lynn Sims through her window.
2: Investigators found this information relevant, especially given the particularly violent and somewhat sexual nature of Joy Lynn's injuries.
4: It's not known if there was an official police report or if the Sims family had decided to press charges. But if Juliet found out, that could give the two of them a considerable motive, Larry Campbell figured to make sure the Sims family kept quiet.
2: Additionally, from what we know about Juliet socially, it's possible she felt that if she lost Romeo's affections, she'd lose the only friend she ever had. Those who knew Juliet did not put it past her to kill someone if she felt cornered enough.
4: And what's more, Romeo had the resources to figure out how to get away with murder and it appears as though he used them.
2: Romeo's father was a very famous criminologist at the time, beloved both within his profession and within the Tallahassee community. Someone like that would undoubtedly have friends in law enforcement.
4: Friends who may or may not have been more than happy to do him a favor or two, if it meant getting his son out of a jam.
2: Between the deep respect Romeo's father commanded around town and Romeo and his father's superior knowledge of criminology, Romeo and Juliet managed to evade arrest for years.
4: They moved out of town and eventually divorced at some point in the mid-1980s.
2: As far as pursuable suspects in the Sims family murders went, Romeo and Juliet looked like they were in the clear for good
4: until Juliet called Larry Campbell one day in 1987 and requested an audience with him.
2: She sat down for what would become a six-hour interview, which she consented to have videotaped about how, hypothetically, she might have participated in the Sims family murders.
4: Taking great care to avoid incriminating herself directly, Juliet talked about how, in a dream, she found out her boyfriend had been caught peeping in on 12-year-old Joy Lynn Sims.
2: She told Campbell about how, in her dream, she assured Romeo she would, quote, get in there, get out, and take care of the problem, end quote. You want another cigarette?
3: Yeah, that would be nice.
1: So you're saying you dreamed you and Romeo took them in the bedroom and tied them up?
3: No. I tied them up. In the dream. He was too scared to do anything. Could barely hold the gun.
1: What kind of gun?
3: I don't know. A gun. It was a dream. I dreamed we tied them up. Then what? I cleared up his thing with that girl. With Joy? I didn't ask her name. I dreamed I, um... I took care of it. Showed him how ridiculous it was to be looking at her. I mean, her body, it's just a kid's. If he'd been looking at the mother, I'd understand, but it's just a kid.
1: How'd you take care of it?
3: I dreamed. I took care of it with a big old knife. Hunting knife? Sure. Maybe. It was hard to tell in the dream. I had to show him. Then... He showed all of them.
1: So Romeo killed the parents?
3: I dreamed he did. After I dreamed, I shut up that ugly little girl. And Romeo? He was there, looking out, making sure that we didn't get into trouble. Hey, can I have some more coffee?
1: You stay comfy. Keep talking. We'll get you anything you want.
4: Over the course of this six hours, Juliet took Larry Campbell on an emotional roller coaster ride. She was
2: finally saying everything he wanted to hear, couched in language just careful enough that it protected her from technically confessing to anything.
4: Finally, Juliet got around to asking a question that would prove to be a turning point in the interview. She said to Larry Campbell, and I quote, What would y'all do with somebody like me? in what seems like an attempt to make sure her own hide was covered.
2: The sheriff admitted she'd likely be committed to a state mental hospital. While mental health care had come a long way from the the one-flew-over-the-cuckoo's-nest days, in the late 1980s, a state mental institution in Florida was hardly something to get excited about.
4: Juliet clammed up and ended the interview shortly afterwards, walking out of Larry Campbell's office. Their last tangible lead seemed to slip through their fingers as quickly as it had appeared.
2: After a little digging, Sheriff Campbell and the investigators in the Sheriff's Office figured out the woman's visit was hardly random.
4: She had divorced Romeo a year before, and shortly before she came to visit Campbell and recount a six-hour dream sequence, her alimony ran out. She filed for a judge to extend it, and her motion was denied.
2: Putting her ex-husband in jail for murder sure is a way to stick it to him once and for all. But when the female suspect figured out there was no way to incriminate her husband while keeping her own hands clean, she backed away and never returned any follow-up calls from Larry Campbell or his office. After the interview in 1987, Juliet moved out of state, remarried, and never spoke about the Sims family murders again.
4: Larry Campbell died in 2014, and took his anguish over never being able to close the case to the grave with him. Romeo, however, did not stay so quiet as Juliet in recent years.
2: In 2015, a Florida State University student named Kyle Woods started an ambitious final project, a documentary about the Sims family murders.
4: The documentary was the first time Larry Campbell's 1987 interview footage with Juliet in the Sims Family Murders was made widely available to the public.
2: Even 50 years later, the Sims Family Murders were still an iconic part of Tallahassee's history. So when Wood started working on the documentary, it generated a buzz around town.
4: To his surprise, Romeo, whose famous criminologist father was now long dead, volunteered himself to be interviewed.
2: In recent years, since his father's death, Romeo had also come forward on crime blogs and Reddit threads to defend his innocence in the murders.
4: However, his testimony of events in 641 Muriel Court doesn't match what his ex-wife told Larry Campbell, or what investigators had deduced back in 1966.
2: Romeo's memory for specifics also seemed to sharpen over time.
4: When he was initially interviewed in the 1960s, he swore he didn't know exactly what time Juliet dropped him off. And yet, when he was interviewed again after the female suspect visited Larry Campbell in 1987, he swore she dropped him off at precisely 11.07 p.m.
2: Romeo's memory of the mysterious white car full of men also grew more elaborate over time. All things that Woods points out in his 641 Muriel Court documentary.
4: The documentary paints a compelling picture of why Romeo and Juliet's dark backgrounds and strange predilections potentially drove them to murder Robert, Helen, and Joy Lynn Sims.
2: Unfortunately, investigators likely had their best shot at obtaining a confession back in 1987, and chances of another opportunity at this point look very slim.
4: The Leon County Sheriff's Office still struggles with the same dilemma their former sheriff did. They believe they know who's responsible for the murders, but fear they'll never be able to successfully hold them accountable because of insufficient evidence."
2: Investigators were sure of one thing though. After watching the 1987 interview footage with Juliet, she had been inside the Sims home. There was no doubt about that. She knew things about the layout of the house and its details that nobody could know without being inside and not just in a dream.
4: But Juliet's evasive non-confession, combined with the fact that investigators never found a murder weapon, makes the Sims family murder case a tough one to crack to this day.
2: Larry Campbell carried the Sims family murder case with him his entire 53 years in law enforcement. Since day one, he remained almost certain Romeo and Juliet were responsible.
4: The details of the crime scene combined with Juliet's eerily premonitory dream about killing the Sims family with Romeo in tow makes for a convincing argument to me as well. I'm pretty sold that Romeo and Juliet are the killers.
2: I agree. There is just too much evidence to suggest otherwise
4: especially since our other three primary suspects, Pastor C.A. Roberts, Tommy Fulgham, and Robert Howells, had sufficient alibis, while Romeo and Juliet had sufficient motive.
2: Juliet had a highly dysfunctional upbringing, one that deprived her of healthy, intimate relationships, and perhaps even deprived her of unconditional love altogether.
4: As a result, when she finally found that in Romeo, She naturally dug her claws in and felt protective of that relationship.
2: If there was a possibility Romeo might be taken from her and sent to jail over peeping at 12-year-old Joy Lynn Sims, Juliet might even have been protective enough of her relationship with Romeo to kill someone over it.
4: And still somehow see herself as a victim, which would explain her instinct for self-preservation when she finally came forward about the murders to Larry Campbell all those years later. It's possible
2: Juliet knew something was amiss with her own mental health and justified the Sims family murders in her mind as something she did to save Romeo, help him cover up his past indiscretions.
4: And if that's the case, why should she be punished? Especially if the punishment is as severe as a state-run mental institution.
2: So she figured out how to get the weight of what they'd done off her chest while still saving her own hide by giving Larry Campbell the admission he'd always look for disguised as a dream.
4: While it's terrible that Larry Campbell went to the grave without formally solving the Sims family murder case, we believe that conversation with Juliet in 1987 may have offered him, and whoever was following the investigation, some much needed closure.
2: 52 years after the murder that lost Tallahassee its innocence, the sheriff's office is still looking for closure and now everyone in Tallahassee still bolts their doors at night don't forget to subscribe to unsolved murders on apple podcasts tune in google play stitcher spotify or any other podcast directory If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday.
4: And again, thank you all for listening.
2: We'll see you next time.
4: If we live till next time.
2: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Lorelei Ignis and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, and Steve Pinto.